Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, my name is Robert Osborne. I'm principal of the Osborne Group. I'm joined by my colleague, Laurel McCombs. Hi, Laurel. How are you? I'm good. Hi, Bob. Excited to be here. Yeah, me too. We're, we're excited to be talking about anti-racist fundraising for the APRA. So yeah, we're, uh, I think Prospect Research has a definite role to play when it comes to anti-racist fundraising. So we're excited to be talking about this topic. Absolutely. So actually, Bob, why don't you get us started a little bit? Because I think and one of the things we found as we've been talking about this with groups across the country is that people are are on a pretty wide spectrum when it comes to anti-racism, when it comes to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. So why don't you just get us started by talking a little bit about what we even mean when we say anti-racism and what we even mean when we say taking an anti-racist approach to fundraising? Yeah, it's a really good, really good question. So what we mean by anti-racism, and and there's lots of material out there in the world about this, and we suggest that if you're uh, interested in it, you check it out. Ibram Kendi is the main person who has talked about this. He has a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. So check that out. But basically, it's the idea that if you accept the premise that there is a high degree of structural racism within um, American society, that to be complacent in the face of that racism perpetuates and is to sort of be a part of that racism at the same time. So that in fact, we actually have to be anti-racist. We have to proactively fight racism because to just maintain the status quo is insufficient because if the status quo is racist and you're part of the status quo, then de facto taking part in a racist system. And so that's what we mean by anti-racism. And we're not really going to be talking about that concept today, but we are going to be talking about it as it pertains to fundraising. So what we mean by anti-racist fundraising is how can we look at our practices, how we approach our work, how we think about our work, and try to do it in a manner that that is anti-racist, that doesn't just accept the status quo, but actively in some way works against racist practices, the assumptions we that we make. This obviously extends to everything from HR and how you structure your development department to how you actually conduct your work out there in the world. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Laurel and I have been talking about this a lot over the last year, certainly, but um, you know, certainly something as as two people of color that that we've talked about forever, right? <laughs> in many, in many different ways. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think what's been really interesting to me is we have been out, you know, kind of talking with more and more people about this and that there has been more of an appetite for the sector to kind of embrace this idea and talk more about some of the things that are happening. I know we, we mention a lot community centric fundraising. If any of you out there haven't checked out their website and their resources, they're doing incredible work around kind of really thinking about philanthropy and, and some of the, the kind of core issues that are facing philanthropy. And, and so you definitely a, a group to subscribe to and read their stuff. And I think when we have thought about you know, the Osborne group and kind of our role in this is really how do we make this practical for all of you that are out there just trying to do this in a day-to-day way. And one of the things I, I always love, Bob, that you talk about is, you know, that, that we've got to really emphasize the return on investment in this. And we have to be sure that any work we do around and taking an anti-racist approach, that we recognize that there's actual bottom line return that we're gonna see on this. And and that's so important because that's the way it sticks, right? If we aren't ultimately, when times get tough, it's not gonna be good enough that this is just the right thing to do. It's also gotta be 
a profitable thing to do, you know, for our organizations. And so I think that's, you know, one of the common traps that we've seen is people kind of thinking it's an and or an or, right? Is, you know, we either take an anti-racist approach or we raise money. But I think we really believe that it's it's an and, right? You can do both of these things and, and they can really benefit each other. But, you know, speaking of traps, I know there's a handful that as we've been talking about this though that we've seen and I know you've you've got some kind of common traps in doing this work that I'd love to have you share. Yeah, so I think I think there's a few. I mean there's there's a bunch, you know, um, and I would say the biggest ones and I think people are pretty aware of this already is just how we communicate, right? Like how do we do we kind of perpetuate a white savior complex? Do we, how do we talk about our clients? You know, do we talk about them as partners? Or do we talk about them as people that are in need of saving or have some sort of deficit or the like? So I think those are, are pretty well known and, and people are, are taking a look at that as, as well as taking a look at who's pictured in your brochure and, and, and all of these, and all of these kind of things. But I think what's probably more important is that people really, one, make sure that they're doing the work, you know, so whatever you're communicating, that you're in fact doing the work around that, you know, to, to being true to the work that you're doing to if you're not doing the work that you're not taking resources away from people who are, in fact, doing the work and, and that we're not just chasing dollars for the sake of chasing dollars, which you shouldn't do anyway, you should have a clear vision. I know, I know, we're going to talk about that a little later, and you should have a clear sense clarity about, you know, what it is you're doing and what you specifically need money for. So that's always a good thing to follow. But in this instance, you know, we want to make sure that we're conscious of who's doing this work the best, who's doing it well, who is part of the community and is responsive to whatever community is you're serving and is represented by that community and making sure that either you're doing the work and communicating that work well, or if you're not doing the work to step aside and let other people do that work instead. And, and the other thing is too, is like, you know, I think the most helpful thing for me around this is really making sure that we just question our assumptions, you know, and that goes for everybody, not just people uh, of Caucasian descent, but all of us, uh, all of us have our implicit biases, all of us have our understandings, and and we need to really question what we think is, is true, in the sense that we have to be aware that Western society is the dominant culture here. And there's things that go along with that. And we're not judging that, but what we are saying is, you know, our, our norms are around that particular society and the things we value. And it's not the only society out there and it's not the only way of thinking about things. And I've been using the example a lot here in New York about objective truth and, and meritocracy and, and the like. And that's an area that I've had to really question myself, you know, because I realize that a lot of times we use statistics and metrics in a way to, to perpetuate a, a status quo. When we don't question whether those statistics are meaningful, we don't question really the validity of, the, of those statistics and how we, how we collect them, we don't ask those questions. So, you know, ask the questions. I think that's, that's really one of the more valuable things that we can do and, and question our assumptions and be open to other interpretations. Yeah, and it feels that feels really pertinent to prospect research professionals, right? Because I think of everyone in our business, I feel like prospect research tends to be this area that is so statistics, data, hard fact driven, right? And so in some ways you kind of look at that from an objective perspective and you say, well, but the, the, it's, the, it's the truth, right? These are facts, this is data. 
But there's also ways that we do things and ways we've always done things in prospect research that kind of dictate the data we collect and how we look at that data and how we prioritize that data and the assumptions that we then make from that data, right? So it feels like, you know, this idea of kind of objectivity, questioning objectivity is particularly relevant to this audience, right? In that, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for prospect research to kind of think about why do we prioritize these five data points and not these other five data points? Or why, when we do look at these five data points, it leads us to exclude this group of people and prioritize this group of people, right? So I think there's there's a really exciting and interesting opportunity within prospect research to just think about, not that the data's wrong, but just how we're using the data and which data we're, we're using. So I think that's that's a really interesting opportunity. And I know that one of the other things, I think there's a lot of myths about BIPOC donors. And again, I think there's a lot of opportunity here for prospect research to play a role in breaking down some of those myths and common misperceptions about BIPOC donors. And I know you've got some interesting data and, and reflections on that. Yeah, I think it's particularly relevant. And again, I think it's it's one of the nice things I think about thinking about anti-racist fundraising is it's not different from any other aspects of fundraising. And we're going to really get into that in a bit. I know you have lots of thoughts about that, Laurel. But I think a lot of times we, you know, we're just looking, we're always looking for the richest people, right? Like if we're just going to kind of sum things up, which I think is not always the best way to do just regular old development work, because those are not always, the most obvious people are not always your best bets. Like the super rich person in your community who everyone's approaching may not be nearly as good a prospect as the successful lawyer or the successful doctor or the person who's about to become the managing director of some, you know, some company, you know, that some 37 year old person that you never heard of that is about to be a really useful source. And so I think that becomes really irrelevant to around prospect research is, is really thinking about, right, like who, who are we really looking at? And the reality is that we tend to, and this is almost unquestioned, including by people of, of BIPOC descent, that we don't have any money, you know, <laughs> that there's, that they're, that they're poor, you know, and so certainly poverty can hit BIPOC communities more than it would may hit other communities, but it's not monolithic. And the reality is, is that like 14% of the millionaires in this country are, are, are BIPOC. Um, you know, the, the recent Smithsonian raised $500 million, much of it coming from African-Americans. So those fastest growing Latino business owners, Latinx business owners are the fastest growing sector, you know, in terms of business ownership. So there's a lot out there that we don't question, right? When, when reality is that there is money, it's maybe you have to dig a little harder, maybe you have to search around for it a little bit more, you know, look at, for instance, with African-Americans, giving circles are really popular. Maybe you have to look at fraternities and sororities. Maybe you have to look in places that hasn't occurred to you to look before, but that wealth is, is there. And so we that's like going back to talking about questioning our assumptions. I think that's like the first assumption we really have to make is that one, that, that there's money out there, and two, that this is worthwhile. Again, from your what you were talking about earlier, not just from a moral standpoint, but from a, a payoff, return on investment standpoint. But you know, I think let's take a quick step back before we kind of get into the nitty gritty uh, of this, because I know you and I 
we do pride ourselves on being practical and as a firm, I think it's who you and I are personally, but also as a firm, it's our identity. We want to take a lot of the concepts that are floating out there and really talk about them in a concrete sort of way. And so we get approached a lot of like, well, how do you do this? Like, tell us what to do. <laughs> and lots of, you know, we're not able to tell you what to do because really anti-racist fundraising is a, it's a journey. It's a spectrum. There's a lot of things that can be part of it. You know, is, is it, is it changing your hiring practices in some way? Is it providing more professional development? Uh, is it partnering with BIPOC led organizations or BIPOC community organizations that serve BIPOC communities? You know, what, what is it? It can be many, many different things, right? Like how do you do your prospect research? What is that what does that look like? And there's no one answer to it. And I know that we really feel like the key is around, around values. And I, and I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that, Laurel. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think where we have seen a lot of people get stuck is in these foundational elements of our organizations. I think a lot of people have wanted to just jump straight into tactics and kind of say, you know, well, what messaging do we use or what pictures do we put on our website or, you know, whatever it is. And I think all of that's important and we'll get to that more in just a minute. But I think, you know, to Bob's point for us to be able to take one step back and think about kind of the core foundation that we're building our fundraising programs on and that's mission, vision and values, right? And, you know, most of you have pretty solid mission in place. You, you know what you do, you know why you exist, but then, you know, making sure that your organization has a really compelling and inspiring vision for the next three to five years, right? Laid out, you know, this is, if we're able to accomplish our mission, this is what is going to be different in the community. And, and vision becomes so important as we're going out to new communities, as we're going out to bring more people into our ecosystem, you know, we, we're going to bring more people in at a higher level of engagement if they're really inspired by what we're trying to accomplish in our community. And if what we're trying to accomplish aligns with what they want to accomplish, right? So, you know, we have to be able to talk about that. And then I think thinking about values and, and not it's not something we think about enough in our work, but for all of our organizations, there is and should be a written set of values that says, if this is what we're trying to achieve in our community, this is how we expect ourselves to behave in doing that, right? These are the expectations and behavioral norms for our culture, for our organization. And why we think this is so important for anti-racist fundraising in particular is because we've just seen so many, unfortunately, so many organizations that after the murder of George Floyd and, and you know the unrest that followed, there were so many organizations that went out and kind of put out public statements about support of Black Lives Matter and support of various things and you know getting involved in this conversation. And then we saw this pretty significant backlash for a lot of organizations from donors, from board members, from volunteers who kind of said, wait a minute, why are you talking about this? Like, I don't understand how this is relevant to the work we do. And what we realized is there were a lot of organizations that hadn't done that initial step of just saying, this is why diversity and equity and inclusion and justice and this work, why this is so important to the work that we do. And you know, so I, we've been talking a lot about before you go and jump onto the strategies and the tactics of taking an anti-racist approach, you've got to start with having these internal conversations with your staff, with your board, with your donors, with your volunteers, 
about what are the, the behaviors that we value, right? What are our values and why are those values important to our work, right? Not in that, not just kind of loosely being like, well, we value compassion and trust and diversity, but why are compassion, trust, and diversity important to you achieving your vision, right? And so, you know, just, a, I think, a really important place to start. And then once you have that set, you can feel free to then go out and Im- implement your tactics and strategies, knowing that everybody's on the same page, that, that nobody's going to come back and say, why are we talking about this? And if they do, you have a set of values that you can point back to and say, remember, we talked about this, like, this is... This is how we're taking, this is the the approach we're taking because it's really important, right? And so I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about it because I think it's a stumbling block for a lot of folks out there. So once people have their values in place, like I said, you can then start to actually put some plans in place to do some things. And I know there's a lot of, as Bob said, there's a lot of different ways that you could approach this, you know, whether it's staffing or how you do donor management or how you, you know, communicate what technology you use, all of those kinds of things. But I know, you know, one of the areas that I think particularly for this group, staffing, I think there's some real opportunities around how we think about staffing. So Bob, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think the quickest way to at least center racial justice and equity in your in your fundraising is to make sure that you have staff <laughs> that that have that lived experience that are part of those those communities who can provide feedback and provide thoughts on things maybe you haven't thought about in a different perspective and 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 understand how your communications and your actions are going to resonate within that within that community and then there's really no shortcut for that really right like that's that's the easiest way to do this work and it's important to do so we know that in our field that there's lots of people of color, but not that many people of color in leadership. That's something else to be thinking about. Why is that? Why is that the case? Um, why are people of color not advancing in your organization to a director level or you know a senior vice president level? So many problems that I've seen over the last year could have been avoided <laughs> by just having some level of people in senior manage- management. Because even when I've, I've seen lots of times when problems have been surfaced, if that's not the decision maker who's surfacing them, they get dismissed or they get water, those concerns get watered down and the like. And two, you know, around staffing is just, is, you know, we as people of color just get asked less and that's a real missed opportunity because we know that there's money out there. And if you have people who are part of those communities and understand where to find the wealth and where to go and are likely to, more likely to ask people within BIPOC communities for money, that's that's an advantage as well. So just starting there, that's probably the easiest thing that you can do. And it's like a, a firm base to, to build on and that you can take, uh, take further. Hard to do this work, I would say, without it. And then, you know, around anti-racism itself, you know, I think everyone has some obligation to educate themselves around this, or at least educate yourself about what your staff might be facing. Don't put this work all on your on your BIPOC staff, but make sure that that you are doing whatever self-education you need to do, and make sure that your middle managers and your staff, or you know, who are managing BIPOC staff, are equipped to do so. You know, and and understand where we're coming from and the microaggressions that sometimes we have to face and the, the challenging, difficult situations we're sometimes put in. So a lot of this starts with staffing and goes from there. But once you kind of have that, then I would say, and I know you believe this, Laurel, like the what works in this works is it, where things break down and 
anti-racist fundraising are the same places they break down and just, <laughs> you know, regular fundraising and where they go well uh, are the same things as well. And it's really taking a look at your, your donor management model. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, Laurel. Yeah, you know, I think there's so many opportunities when we think about donor management, we think about this consistent process by which donors are put through, you know, kind of from identification, through research, through engagement, solicitation, stewardship, right, this kind of, this consistent model, I think within every step of that model, there are opportunities for us to just look at how are we doing this? And we may not be, your, your organization may not be intentionally exclusive, but it certainly probably has areas where it could be more inclusive, right? Like, and so, you know, I, I don't know that any of our systems, you know, hopefully are purposefully keeping certain groups of people out, but there are lots of things we do along that journey of, of a donor that we realize we're probably losing people or not bringing them in in the first place. And so again, I think as we mentioned before, prospect research plays a really interesting role in all of this because so many you know, our prospect research professionals are kind of almost like opening and closing the dam, right? In terms of who's who's coming in and who's not coming in or who's coming in and which portfolios they're getting put on based on some level of criteria. And so, you know, when we when we take a step back and we look at that piece of the donor management puzzle and we think about, okay, well, you know, why are certain people getting prioritized? Why aren't certain people getting prioritized? Is capacity alone the only thing we should be looking at? Or is there some, you know, when we start to look at more nuances of inclination, right? Like, I think that's where we start to think, you know, to Bob's point earlier, is the 37-year-old middle manager that's about to become the C-level executive but is super passionate about the work. And actually we find out that he gives closer to 10% of his income compared to the CEO who gives 2% of his income, right? You know, you think about these different factors and, and you all out there, those you, you prospect researchers, you're the ones who can help us figure this out. And I think I get that there can be pressure from your major gift officers to just bring me the richest people, but I think you have an opportunity to help educate your major gift officers, right? About, well, this is why I'm sending these names to you. And I think that, you know, again, as the gatekeepers of who gets on portfolios and who doesn't, I think you play a really interesting role in helping to educate some of your, your major gift officers, your development folks, uh, your, you know, the people who, who are doing the relationship management to kind of say, if we want to diversify and take a more anti-racist approach, then we've got to be thinking about our criteria differently. So I think it's a really exciting opportunity. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I'll tell a quick story before we wrap up. I mean, it's not specifically around ethnicity, but I, I remember having a client in the Pacific Northwest and uh, and based in Seattle, and but had in charge of the the state. And they were telling me, well, there's just not that many environmental donors. We just don't have that many. Where are we supposed to find them? I'm like, really? They're I'm like, in Seattle and in Washington State, there's not that many. And they were very insistent upon it. But but they were their criteria was so narrow. It was so narrow when they did their prospect research. Like it was like people who only who gave to the environment as opposed to people who might also give to environmental justice or who might take a broader progressive, you know, it's not exactly the same, but it probably correlates, right? Where to some, to some extent, you know, progressive, other progressive causes, you know, they had to have given like within the last year or two, as opposed to 
a broader look at things. Whereas like, like someone like me, sometimes depending on who's asking and depending on where my head is, I might give a bunch to this cause this year and a bunch to a diff- another cause next year. But overall, my pool of causes that I like it's pretty stable. And so it was just, it was just interesting hearing from the left coast, there's no donors here. <laughs> it's like, this is a prospect research problem. This is not a reality, <laughs> a reality problem. And I think the same idea can be applied to this work. It's, it's kind of like, well, nothing's going to change if we do things exactly the same way, right? Like it's going to, this is something that's a little different. It requires thinking about things a little, a little differently. And that means, you know, whatever your norms and your, your sort of set practices around prospect research, but we need to question them a little bit and, and, and think and think harder about them. But I know, Laurel, that you and I, this is, like I said, this is a journey, right? It's a, it's a journey and, and it's a journey we're all on. No one's really figured this out completely. There really wasn't a market for this uh, or interest in it on this, on this level until very recently. And so I think it's great, but uh, no one has all the answers and, and you shouldn't feel paralyzed if you don't have all the answers. What I think you and I would say, Laurel, is like, take that first step, right? Like really examine what you're doing and, and try to do something differently, you know, and, and see how it works and, and think about how you can move into the future, trying more and more and more, but don't let not having all the answers today stop you from doing something today as well, because none of us have all the answers. And, and this is something that we're all figuring out, figuring out together. Absolutely. I I wholeheartedly agree. And I think, again, because prospect research has always been the part of our industry that has been so rooted in data, there's a real opportunity for you to experiment and then actually have data that measures your success. So, So best of luck to you all. We're excited to be on this journey with you all and hope you'll you'll let us know what's working for you. Exactly. Thanks, everyone. Great. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.